Let's pray as, as we turn to God's word together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word given to us to enlighten us, to show us what you're like, to show us your gospel, uh, to show us the Lord Jesus. And we pray, please, Lord, as we turn to it now, would you open the eyes of our hearts? Would you soften our hearts to receive your word, to receive its message, to trust afresh in the Lord Jesus, and to turn to him, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, school or Christmas, um, if we were to ask these kids when they were here, what would you prefer, school or Christmas? I think it's a bit of an obvious answer, isn't it? Christmas wins every day. Uh, of course, on a school morning, I don't know what it was like for you growing up, on a school morning for me, it was a battle to get out of bed. I didn't want to get out of bed. Um, I dragged my feet. Um, I complied my parents chivying. I knew I had to go to school, so I was resigned to it. But I wasn't excited to go. I wasn't enthusiastic to go. I did enjoy school once I got there, but I wasn't excited to go. Contrast that with Christmas morning. Well, I don't know what is the earliest you've ever got up on a Christmas morning. Um, but whatever time it is, you're up early. Maybe not now, but as a kid, you jump out of bed. You run down the stairs, you're excited and enthusiastic because you know it's Christmas and there's going to be gifts for you. Well, this morning we're thinking all about repentance. Uh, repentance, turning to God. Um, and thinking specifically about how we think about and view repentance. Because typically, I think, if we're believers, we view repentance a bit like school. We know that we need to repent. We, we recognize that we, we have to. It's, 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 we, we, but we, we're, not, we're not excited about it. We're reluctant about it, perhaps. I know I have to. I suppose it's good for me. But in truth, I'd really rather not. Sometimes that is how we as believers can view repentance. But actually, Peter, in his sermon to us this morning, wants to change how we view and think about repentance so that we see repentance more like Christmas as a blessing to get excited about, something worth jumping out of bed for, and as a gift to be embraced, not a chore to be avoided. So let's have a look at this chapter, Acts uh, chapter 3. And we begin by thinking about this miracle um, that Peter and John did. Uh, Peter and John, they were going to the temple to pray, and they come across a man who uh, was sitting there by the temple gate. He was lame, so he couldn't walk. And without wheelchairs and without crutches, he was totally reliant on other people to, to, to carry him there. And actually, for this man, that was always the case. He was lame from birth. He could never walk. And with no prospect of getting work back then in that economy, and with no uh, disability allowance, the only hope that he had of, of, of filling his belly was to beg. 
And so when he sees Peter and John going into the temple, he asks them what he asked everybody. Could you, could you spare me some change? It's what he'd been doing day after day for years. But this man's life was about to change radically because filled with compassion, Peter and John stop and speak to him. They don't give him money. They don't have any to give him. They don't scribble down the number of a physio that they know uh, to give to him so that uh, some of his pain might be alleviated. They don't even sit down with him and pray with him for healing. Now, Peter says just nine words to him. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. And then amazingly, they help him up. His feet and his ankles become instantly strong, and he walks. In fact, his, his feet and ankles are now so strong, and he's so overwhelmed by what has just happened to him, that he praises God, leaping and jumping his way into the temple courts. This isn't surgery followed by months of rehabilitation. This is immediate and total healing. We read that the other worshippers at the temple knew this man. Every time they had gone to the temple, they would have walked past him. Some perhaps knew him by name, maybe would have stopped and talked with him or given him a coin. Others perhaps pretended not to see him, but all of them knew who he was. And so now seeing him jumping and leaping his way into the temple, they are astonished, we're told. They cannot believe their eyes. And as word spreads about what has just happened, they all run towards Peter and John and this man. It is an amazing miracle. Well, with the crowd now all staring at Peter and John, Peter addresses them, fellow Israelites. What does Peter say to them about what has just happened? Well, I think he says a number of, of things. If you've got Acts 3 open, have a look down firstly at verse 12, the beginning of Peter's message. Because the first thing that Peter says to them, well, the first thing he does is that he's at pains to stress that this miracle was done by Jesus, not them. Verse 12, he says to them, why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? No, 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 no. Then in verse 16, he says, no, it's by faith in the name of Jesus that this man whom you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has completely healed him. In other words, he says to them, what you have just seen is an act of King Jesus. God has glorified him, raised him, and ascended him into heaven. He now sits and rules from his throne in heaven. And this man walking and jumping, as you have seen, is proof of that. This is an act of King Jesus. But that's not all Peter says, because he also confronts this crowd with how they treated this King Jesus. 
he reminds them of who Jesus is. Verse 13, that Jesus is God's promised servant, the one Isaiah prophesied about. He is the holy and righteous one, verse 14. He is the author of life itself, he says. But let me just remind you, he says to this crowd, how you treated him. You handed him over to be killed, verse 13. You disowned him before Pilate, even though Pilate had already decided to let him go. You killed the author of life and asked for a murderer to be released to you instead, verse 14. He says to them, you had a choice about which prisoner to release. It was in your hands. And you chose to have a dangerous murderer released back into your community rather than see this Jesus released. That is how you, he says to them, as a generation, as a group, treated this Jesus who has just done this most amazing thing. So Peter, he gives Jesus the credit. He confronts them with their treatment of Jesus. And then in kindness, he calls on them to repent. Verse 17, if you've got it in front of you. He says, now, fellow Israelites, I, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders. In other words, I, I appreciate that you didn't really get who it was that you were crucifying. But nevertheless, for how you've rejected Jesus, you must repent and turn to God. This word repent has got two, two ideas to it, two aspects to it. It means literally change your mind. Change your mind. She so says, stop thinking of Jesus as some kind of nuisance figure or as a fraudster and start recognizing him for who he really is, the king of the cosmos, God's Messiah, the author of life who reigns from heaven. Change your mind about who Jesus is and start to listen to him. So that's one aspect of repentance. The second aspect is to change direction. Uh, turn away from your wicked ways, verse 26. Put your, put your evil behind you and leave it in the past and turn instead and go God's way and to him. Repent, change your mind, change direction. And if they do repent, well, just listen to what God promises them. Verse 19. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord, and that he may send the Messiah to restore everything. Three amazing promises for those who would repent. Repent that your sins may be wiped out. I don't know if you ever had the experience from school days of seeing your name or your initials written up on the blackboard at the front of class. It's not a nice feeling, is it? PV, no homework, detention. What you would give in that moment for the teacher to get a cloth and to wet it and just wipe it off the blackboard. 
It's as if their names and crimes are written up on God's blackboard. Benjamin, complicit in killing God's king. Consequence, hell. Miriam, complicit in killing God's king. Consequence, hell. And yet Peter tells them that if they would only repent and turn to God, change their minds, change their action, God would, if you like, take a cloth, wet it, and wipe it off the blackboard. It's a beautiful picture of forgiveness. Repent and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. Peter's speaking here probably about the gift of the Holy Spirit, just as he did at the end of his Pentecost sermon. Another amazing promise, not just that God is willing to, to pardon, but that he is willing to refresh them by giving them the Holy Spirit. Yeah, like, like an ice cold drink on a stinking hot day. He wants to refresh them, to rejuvenate them, to revive them through his Holy Spirit, to give them peace and energy and life. That your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord, that he may send the Messiah to restore everything. I don't know if you've ever watched the, the TV show, The Repair Shop. Um, it's quite a good watch. Um, the idea is that people will bring in uh, kind of broken um, or damaged uh, heirlooms, family heirlooms that need restoration. So an old damaged camera it, it, you know, that, that used to belong to an old grandfather is brought in, or an old faded uh, painting is, is brought in. Um, and this team of restoration experts get to work to restore these artifacts and these heirlooms to their former glory. Well, here... Peter looks forward to a restoration, the restoration of everything to a time when Christ will come back and breathe new life into the entire cosmos and everything will be as new again, not even just restored to its former glory, but made even better than it once was. Of course, God is going to send his Messiah to restore all things, whether this people repent or not. But the promise here is that if they do repent, then they are going to be a part of this future restoration. They will get to enjoy life in this fully restored world when Christ comes back. So here we have amazing promises offered to those who killed and were complicit in the killing of the author of life, if only they would repent, change their minds about Jesus, and turn and go his way. And if they don't repent, well, Peter warns them, verse 22. He says, Moses said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. You must listen to everything he tells you. Moses pointed forward to another prophet like him, to the Lord Jesus. And then Peter warns the people about what would happen if they failed to listen to this prophet. 
verse 23, anyone who does not listen to him will be completely cut off from their people. And so Peter says to them, listen, fail to listen to the second Moses. Fail to listen to this prophet that Moses pointed forward to. Put your fingers in your ears and ignore him, and you'll be cut off from your people. He says to this crowd of Israelites, your um, Israelite citizenship will be revoked. You'll be excluded from your people, your passport confiscated, and you will be no longer considered part of the people of God, but rather God's enemy. A very, very strong warning against continuing to ignore King Jesus. But as we'll see next time, wonderfully, many of those people who were listening did receive the message, and they did repent, such that the number of believers grew to around 5,000. Well, what does all of this teach us? I think it teaches us three things. Firstly, it tells us about the heart of our sin. What is the heart and the essence of sin? Well, at heart, sin is not actually about infringing a moral code or breaking the rules. It is that, but that's not it at heart. Um, Nor is it at heart about hurting other people. Um, That's what our society understands as sin, uh, hurting others. It's horizontal, such that people can say, well, so long as no one gets hurt, it's fine. And of course, the Bible agrees that it's wrong to wrong people, but that's not the heart of sin. What we see here is that the heart of sin is rebelling against and rejecting God and God's King. That is the heart of sin, to rebel against and reject God and God's King. It is to refuse to listen to God's prophet, the Lord Jesus. It is to sideline and silence and dismiss the very author of life, just as this crowd had done by killing him. And it's really important for us as believers to see sin in those terms. I think I've mentioned before from here, Um, how I uh, benefit from using old liturgy on occasion in my my personal prayers. Um, Not because I particularly like old language or written prayers, um, but partly because they express sin in in far more serious terms than I would do so naturally. And they often express sin as rejection of God and His King. Just as an example, if if, if I've been impatient... And I, and I pray to God and say, God, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry I was impatient. That was wrong. Please forgive me. That's good and right. But just listen how that contrasts with, for example, this uh, prayer. This happens to be from the Book of Common Prayer. Almighty God, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, maker of all things, judge of all men, we acknowledge and bewail our manifold sins and wickedness, how often do we use that term to describe our sin, which we most grievously have committed by thought, word, and deed against your divine majesty. It captures the very heart of sin, rejection and rebellion against God and God's King. Now, whether we use written prayers or not is not the point. 
we need to see and express our sinfulness to him and his king. I wonder, do you see the heart of your sin? Secondly, I think this teaches us about the need to repent. Um, sometimes I think we can get all, in, all sort of a, a, a muddle about repentance and the need to repent. And we can find ourselves saying things like, well, I, I thought it was all about belief and believing in Jesus. So what's all of this about repentance? But we've just got to see that belief and repentance are really two sides of the same coin, that, that they're part of a package. They come together. And in fact, when you go through the book of Acts, you see those two terms, belief and repentance, used almost interchangeably to describe conversion. So in this speech, Peter tells them very clearly, you need to repent. He doesn't mention belief. He just says you need to repent. What does this crowd do? We're told it in 4 verse 4. Have a look down if you've got 4 verse 4. What does this, or many of those who heard, what do they do? Many who heard the message believed. No mention of repentance. He calls on them to repent. They believe. And we're thinking, are they not doing what he's told them to do or what's going on? No, it's just because repenting and believing, two sides of the same coin, part of the same package, to turn to Christ and to trust in Christ. Do you want to put it another way? True repentance always involves belief. True belief always involves repentance. So I wonder, do we see the need to repent? And I imagine that probably as a generation of Christians, we've understood that we have to believe. But do we understand to the same extent that we need to repent, to change our minds about Jesus, to change direction? This teaches us that it's essential. On the day that we come to Christ for the first time, and indeed every day afterwards, we are to repent. We are to keep turning back to Christ, to live a life of repentance. As we see here, without that, we cannot be part of the people of God. Anyone who does not listen to this prophet, the Lord Jesus, will be completely cut off from their people. It is essential, the need to repent. Then just thirdly and finally, I think this teaches us of the blessing of repentance. Like I said at the start, sometimes we view repentance as a bit like school or a bit like going on a diet. You know, I know I, I need to. If I need to get to a healthy weight, I suppose it's what I, I should do. Um, I'd better do it. But it's hardly an enriching or exciting experience, a necessary evil, perhaps, we might think. I remember an old teammate um, who thought very much this way about repentance. He wasn't a believer, uh, as far as I know, still isn't. Um, but I remember once we got chatting in depth, and um, uh, at the end of it, I'd said I'd, 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 I'd send him on some uh, talks from an evangelist that I find very persuasive and very helpful. Um, and I did. Anyway, next time I saw him, I said, well, how'd you get on uh, with those things I, I sent you? And he'd listened to them, to his credit. He'd listened to them. 
but he wasn't happy and said, why should I have to live a rubbish life? Why should I have to live a rubbish life? In other words, he had interpreted the call to repent as a call to leave the good life behind and to embrace a kind of impoverished, malnourished kind of existence. But I hope you can see that is so, so far removed from Peter's understanding of repentance. Because according to Peter, repentance, it is the gateway to all of God's blessings, the wiping away of all your sins, even the worst, the spiritual refreshment and rejuvenation of the Holy Spirit, getting to be part of the future restoration of everything, wonderful blessings. And actually, even before you consider those blessings that come as a result, to repent in and of itself is a blessing. I wonder if you saw that in verse 26. When God raised up his servant, Jesus, he sent him first to you to bless you. How? By turning each of you from your wicked ways. Because to change our minds about Jesus and to change the direction of our lives, to go God's way, isn't, isn't just the gateway to other blessings, it's not less than that, but in and of itself, it is a blessing to be turned from wickedness. So repentance isn't about leaving the good life behind. It's actually about leaving an impoverished, malnourished kind of existence behind and embracing the good life of God. It is to become more human, not less, as we find Christ, the one for whom we were made. The blessing of repentance. And so as we close, will you embrace the blessings of repentance? Will you turn and keep turning to God and to his king? Yeah, not dragging our feet as we do so. Not proudly thinking that we're doing God a favor by, by doing so. But quickly and gladly seeing the great offense of our sin and seeing the great blessing it is to turn back to God and to trust in his son. Let's pray as we close. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus, the author of life, the holy and righteous one, your Messiah, the prophet, the son of God. Help us to see our sin as rejection and rebellion against him. Help us to take it seriously. And help us to be those who every day repent and turn back to you for refreshment, for forgiveness, for the certain hope of eternal life, and for the blessing of going your way. Lord, help us in our hearts to view sin and to view repentance, to view you rightly, we pray in Jesus' name.